This is a, a very important weekend for us. Not only are we welcoming uh, freshers among us, but we're welcoming David and Elaine back 42 years ago. Now, that is ancient history to many here today. But 42 years ago, David and a group of others were called to start Emmanuel Church. And I believe we have some founder members here this morning. <laughs> Hello. Andrew and Jane. So, Elaine, can you just come and join us? <clears throat> I don't think you were there right at the very beginning, but you've had to put up with them ever since. Yes, yes. So, you know, what an incredible opportunity for us to hear from the man who's carried the vision that we are enjoying today. And I'm sure it's a tremendous encouragement to look across to see this building full, knowing that God has got a bigger building for us just across the road, and more will be revealed in the coming weeks. So, Father, we do thank you for David and Elaine. We want to thank you for their ministry within the wider body, but particularly, Lord, for their ministry among us. And we pray, Lord, that at this time, that which you laid upon David's heart for us will find a very, very rich resting place within us and bear much fruit. And we do pray that their time here in Durham will be a blessing to them also. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. It was always like uh, coming home. I was thinking when the freshers were standing up uh, of the first days that I arrived in Durham and uh, I felt uh, homesick and weather sick <laughs> and uh, had Australian friends that said, my goodness, the, uh, uh, the month with the least amount of sunshine in Australia has got more sunshine than the month with the most in Durham. And... Uh, uh, but I uh, made a decision because I felt God had called me to England. I, the immediate reason was to do a Ph.D. in, in theology, but uh, I felt a call uh, above and beyond that. And so uh, my heart was always for the local church. And it's like coming home. It is. For Elaine, it is literally coming home. She's uh, comes from one of the mining villages up the valley, and and uh, I stole her away from Geordie land. Or in the case of Raymond and Lindsay, Lindsay Mackham land. I, you know, there's an important distinction, but I won't take sides. <laughs> and so it's a joy to be with you this morning. And I want to talk uh, um, on the subject of discipleship. So I've got... Several verses here from Matthew chapter 8 and verse 18 that I'd like to read. Now, when Jesus saw a crowd around him, this is Matthew 8 and 18, he gave orders to go over to the other side. And a scribe came up and said to him, Teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said, Foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. And another of the disciples said to him, Lord, let me first go and bury my father. And Jesus said to him, follow me and leave the dead to bury their own dead. Jesus was not a seeker-sensitive preacher. You might get the hint from reading these verses. So, 
In the opening chapters of his gospel, leading up to this text here that I read out, Matthew consistently lays out a distinction, a clear distinction between two groups of people. Uh, There is the large crowds of people who appeared wherever Jesus showed up. But there was also a much smaller band of disciples who traveled with him. He called Peter and Andrew and James and John to leave everything behind and follow him uh, in Matthew chapter 4. But the very next verses tell us of great crowds that mobbed him wherever he went. Then when we come to chapter 5, Jesus sees the crowds, but immediately he goes up into the hills and draws the disciples after him. And in the absence of the crowds, he teaches the disciples what we call the Sermon on the Mount. And then he comes down again from that mountain and the crowds are waiting for him once again. So when Jesus was in a large group of people, miracles started to happen. But listen to the difference. He healed the crowds, but he taught the disciples. Nowhere is it suggested in the Gospels that Jesus made the same demands of the crowds that he made of the disciples. Nor is it suggested that the crowds left everything behind and followed him all over Galilee. The crowds were local folk who just appeared wherever Jesus was, and then they went back to their ordinary lives. And Jesus' strategy was never to focus on the large numbers but always to work with a small number whom he discipled to reach the large numbers. Now, there's a difference. But my question is, why is it that in churches today, so often we see the opposite happening? And I know that it's more so true of, for instance, American culture or even culture in some other countries and hasn't been so much true of Britain, but I think it's becoming true of Britain. We love to create big churches where many people are entertained, but few people are equipped. People come and go untrained, untaught, and undiscipled. Instead, we should be working with small groups of disciples, teaching and training them to create Spiritual families who will go out, plant churches, and create more disciples. Crowds will disperse in a moment. Families last for a lifetime. There have been churches, I can think of one right now in my mind, where when the pastor fell into uh, ungodly conduct, the whole thing vaporized. Thousands of people dispersed. They were there one Sunday, next Sunday they were gone. Here, the family's still here after 40 years. Families don't disperse. Families remain. And they multiply. So, recently, a young man... I'll get it right. Blame it in jet lag, I guess. Recently, a young man who is planning a church with his wife in... um, the city of Phoenix, poured out his heart to me. He had gone everywhere looking for help in church planning. He had gone to a number of significant national ministries that were involved in, you know, how do you plant a church? 
And every single church planning ministry or movement that he talked to, it turns out, had the same method and only one method. It was, we'll teach you how to get as many possible people through the front door as possible. That's it. That was their first and last step. And he said, that's not what I'm interested in doing. There was nothing about teaching. There was nothing about discipleship. There was nothing about pastoral care. It was just gimmicks to get people in the door. Now, let me tell you something. Jesus never built his church on the crowds. Never. He built it on the disciples. He didn't study the demographics, create a trendy brand, open a coffee shop in the foyer. No, he said this. You are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church. He spent three years investing, in that case, in a very imperfect man who, even after all that, only ever seemed to open his mouth to change feet. But that was Jesus' strategy. Yes, we can reach out to the crowds if we happen to move in miracles and gifts of healing the same way Jesus did, which would be great if we did, but generally that's not the case. But even if we did that, even if we had success, the crowds that we would attract would never form the foundation of a church any more than they formed the foundation of Jesus' church. It's not not how God operates. At best, the crowds are a fishing pond from which we can draw disciples. Jesus reached out to the crowds in compassion, but he always chose to build his church on this much smaller foundation of men and women who were willing to give everything up to follow him. That is my challenge to you this morning. Are you just part of a crowd or are you a disciple? Are you someone who wants to be a disciple? Are you someone who is coming to church for an hour or two on Sunday morning to get a spiritual uplift and then go back and carry on your business without your life ever being greatly affected? Or are you coming here to have your life challenged and changed and equipped so that you can go out the door to reach other people for Christ? And, you know, if you're new in the church or even if you're a student that's come here for the first or second time, this is what we believe here. I mean, it's great. You, you, y'all come here and y'all be impacted by the power of the Holy Spirit, the gifts of the Holy Spirit. You'll see all of that. There'll be community and fellowship that reaches out to you. And, and that's wonderful. But what do you do with it? What do you do with it? That's the challenge. In the dark days after his crucifixion, we notice in the scriptures that the crowds disappeared from Jesus. And, uh, well, the crowds vaporized. They weren't there. But the family, with only one exception, remained. And it was on the foundation of the family... Not the thousands that had been fed with the loaves and fishes and the thousands in every other place that Jesus went. But it was on the foundation of that small spiritual family that on the day of Pentecost, Jesus began to build his church. The same Peter 
everyone else but Jesus would have given up on. I would have given up on him. The same Peter that everybody else would have given up on was standing in front of the entire city, putting his life on the line for only one thing, a conviction he had that a man who was dead was now alive. It's the same Pete. It's the same guy who opened his mouth to change feet, who denied Jesus. Is walking along the streets of Jerusalem out of Starbucks with his caramel macchiato in his hand or whatever. And as he's walking along the street, people are lining up the sick and they're getting healed as a shadow. As the shadow of his coffee passes over them. This is the same guy. Because Jesus didn't give up on him. Because Jesus poured three years into him. Because Jesus didn't get diverted and distracted by the thousands of miracle seekers and all the people that were all gung-ho when everything was good. But disappeared when things were tough. Jesus persevered with that small group of men and women, which in the end was only 120 people. But they were the ones who'd been discipled. They were family. And it was on the family that he built his church. And it's and God's method has not changed today. Investing in the few rather than chasing the crowds seemed like a dumb strategy. Must have seemed like a dumb strategy for Jesus to follow, but in the end he was proven right. A young guy that I know quite well is executive pastor of a church in New York City. And he called me up a few months ago after things had begun to reopen. Uh, and he said, we went into uh, lockdown, which is quite strict in New York. We went into lockdown. We had 3,000 people. He said, now we only have 750. And I said to him, well, bro, you know, <laughs> you didn't have a church. You just had a crowd. And I said, do you think that God's brought it down to a number that you can actually disciple? And he said, yeah. Um, I said, well, you should thank God for that then. And I said this. I knew the answer. I said, tell me. Have your offerings gone down? 3,750. He said, you know something? He said, that's remarkable. Our offerings haven't changed at all. Huh. I said, really? What does that tell you? I mean, they had a situation where another church imploded in the same city. And one Sunday morning, a thousand people turned up from that church. How are you supposed to deal with that? So... He's at work discipling people. And in the end, it will produce more results and more numbers for the kingdom of God than crowds that just dissipate for whatever reason. Jesus was never tempted to play, play the numbers game. Well, coming to the beginning of the verses that I read, Matthew tells us, he says, as soon as Jesus saw the crowd gathering, he gave orders to go to the other side. We're, we're just the opposite in our church growth culture. We, we'd do anything to get a crowd in. When Jesus saw the crowd coming, he said, let's get out of here. It's funny, isn't it? Now, listen, it isn't that Jesus didn't care for the people. It isn't that Jesus didn't want to reach the people. 
It's just that he knew that the only way in the long run to really reach them was to establish a base of committed disciples who would multiply his own ministry in the world once he was gone. Otherwise, all they'd be left with was the memory of a massive signs and wonders movement based on the ministry of a man who wasn't with them anymore. Successful Christian leaders are always training others for the day they will no longer be there. That's practically all I'm doing now. I'm talking to young uh, pastors and leaders around the world in different places or going to their churches and I'm trying to, whatever it is that I've got, I must have something because I keep getting invited back uh, to offer. Uh, maybe it's just out of kindness. <laughs> People like Alan, say nothing, please. <laughs> but everything that I'm trying to do is to give and invest and disciple the best I possibly can. And I'm involved in an online teaching platform that's become quite successful. And the young guy that leads it, said, well, David, really, I just want to get your videos. Uh, you know, I want to get this all on video here before you die. I said, well, thank you. I said, I'm glad you're showing such care for me. Because he said, when you're gone, if we haven't got it there, it'll be lost. So that should be our heart. As a matter of fact, even as a young Christian, we should be trying to disciple other people. We should be trying to take whatever it is that God's given us and invest it into other people. When you look at church history, it was men like Calvin and Luther and Wesley who left movements behind them because they understood the foundation of discipleship. It wasn't when they didn't just flame out when they died, the whole thing disappeared. They left a movement behind him. I think in more recent times of John Wimber, who uh, had uh, a remarkable gift of healing, but God spoke to him that what he needed to do, instead of holding big healing meetings where he was the center of attention and so on and could enjoy a nice ministry and get a few people healed, he, he believed that God was calling him to equip other people to heal. And so he traveled around the world. He had a massive effect in this country in the 1970s and 80s, training thousands and thousands and thousands of people to minister healing. And he, he, when he died, he left behind an incredible legacy, not only the vineyard churches, but people in many other movements, including the movement at which this church is a part. Many, many people Envisioned, equipped, and taught, and that equipping goes on to this day. So, we do have a plague uh, in some parts of the world of churches where leaders are more like CEOs. And some even call themselves that. Or they're platform personalities. But how many of them are fathers? And mothers. When there's no fathers and mothers in leadership in the body of Christ, why should we surprise why should we be surprised when they leave no sons and daughters behind? A young man called me up who has he and his brother have a, a, a very powerful ministry. It's affecting a lot of young people, very large numbers of young people. And after one phone call he said, Well, David, would you be a spiritual father to me? And I said, Well, 
no, I said, that's, that's not something that can be created in a phone call. That's something that's earned over a long period of time. Trust is earned. And I said, I'll help you any way I can. But my question in ending the call was, where are the fathers in this young man's life? I mean, there should be spiritual fathers in the lives of young men and women, spiritual fathers and mothers in the lives of young men and women today. And in this congregation, there are spiritual fathers and mothers here to disciple young people. So if you're new here and you're a young person, you know, I'd take advantage of that if I were you. Well, back to our story. Jesus, because Alan gave me a deadline and uh, my darn shirt is tied so tightly around my wrist I can't see my watch. (laughs) I know, he's got the buzzer and I'll disappear underground. Okay, back to our story. Jesus ordered the disciples to go with him to the other side of the lake. Now, on the other side of the lake, as it so happened, was a place called the Decapolis. It was a non-Jewish area. If you read further down in Matthew chapter 8, we'll encounter a whole pile of pigs. That's a hint that it wasn't a Jewish area. So if he'd wanted to turn off the crowds that were following after him, going to a a Gentile place with a load of pigs was a great way to do it. So Jesus was making sure uh, as that, you know, maybe he just wanted a bacon buddy. I don't know. No. (laughs) Uh, But Jesus was making sure as best he possibly could that the crowds would actually not follow him. He wanted the disciples only. Popularity can be a terrible distraction from the work of the kingdom. Now, notice how Jesus had no difficulty ordering these guys around. Disciples are not some kind of fan club. The crowd was the fan club. The crowds came for their needs to be met. Once they had their loaves and fishes for free, they were gone. How often do we come to Jesus for what he can give us, not what we can give him? But the disciples, they had no homes to go to, to return to. They were people committed to obedience. Discipleship is unconditional. You put your hand to the plow, said Jesus, and you don't look back. Disciples don't tell God how or when or where they want to serve him or what they expect in return. Disciples follow Jesus, whether it suits their preferences or not. So the question I have to ask myself today is, am I a disciple or am I just another part of the crowd? Is our church a band of disciples committed by covenant? To follow Jesus no matter where he leads. Or is our church just another crowd? You can have excitement, even supernatural excitement, with a crowd. But you will never extend the kingdom of God without a culture of discipleship. Ever. Will never happen. There's another interesting part to this story. Because before embarking on this trip across the lake... Jesus is met by two men wanting to join his small band of disciples. The first is described as a scribe. And he announces his willingness to follow you, Jesus, wherever you go. He addresses teacher, he addresses Jesus as rabbi or teacher. Now, uh, the scribes and the Pharisees had a different concept of discipleship. In, uh, 
Palestine at that time, uh, you, if you were an up-and-coming, you know, religious student or whatever, then you would find a prominent rabbi and you would go and attach yourself to him and follow him around, listen to his teaching and become his disciple. There wasn't any personal interaction. You simply listened to his teaching. There wasn't any instruction. You just listened to his teaching. You, you found whoever suited your preference and you went and attended his talks. But Jesus turned the whole thing in his head. Jesus said, no, I'm the one who's going to choose who is my disciple. You, you can't actually come and follow me unless I choose you. That would have flummoxed this guy because this guy says, well, here I am, I'm going to follow you. And Jesus, well, no, this is, that's not how it works. And because I'm interested in people who are not just here to listen to what I've got to say and follow me around like some kind of groupie and then go home, I actually demand total life obedience. There's nobody, nobody in Palestine had that. Jesus was the only rabbi that had ever existed. He broke the mold and he freaked, must have freaked the whole religious establishment out that way. And so here we have an example of this. The guy comes along and, and says, well, I, you know, his attitude is, well, I'm just going to, to follow Jesus as my rabbi. And he's thinking of Jesus like any other rabbi. And so, uh, but, so Jesus, Jesus, uh, is dealing with this guy and the, and the, and the guy says, and, and, and he was a scribe. So if you were looking for prestigious members of your church or a prestigious disciple in this case, then, you know, Jesus would have been wise to take this guy on board. But so he says, teacher, I'll follow you wherever you go. Big words. But Jesus says, foxes have holes and the birds of the air have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. See, the scribe's words revealed his perception that he didn't really understand the meaning of discipleship or its cost. And then his silence, there's no response given, indicate that he wasn't willing to sign on. He was, first of all, he couldn't believe it that Jesus was actually setting conditions. He thought he could do what he wanted. And the conditions certainly were not to his liking. He must have been shell-shocked. He must have thought Jesus would have been glad to have him attending his meetings. But no, Jesus turns the tables. God's church is not built on people who enter the door to set the terms of discipleship. God's church is not built on people who decide, well, I'd like to live in this town or that place or that neighborhood. Uh, I'm going to base my life on what kind of schools I want to be near so my kids can have their very best. Or I'm going to base my decision on uh, even on a nice church building. But praise God, this is a nice church building. But, you know, that's not ultimately why you're here. Um, I'm not going to base my decision on you know, uh, the fact that there's a dynamic preacher or that there's amazing children's programs or the, the music is great or whether it's loud or not loud or all those type of things, which all of which may be in place and be wonderful. But that's not why you're here. You're here to follow Jesus. You're here to be equipped. You're here to allow the good preaching and the comfortable building and the terrific children's and youth ministry, with which this church, as you can see from what Pete was sharing, is noted for. 
and the wonderful worship leading of the great Raymond Lindsay and all the other people that lead worship here, you know, you're not just here to sit back and think, oh, this is a wonderful experience designed for me. Just like you have gone to Herod's and someone's giving you a gift card and you can just pick and choose what you want. That's not church. You're here so that all these things that are available can equip you to go out and serve the Lord. And maybe go and be involved in a church that doesn't have any of those things. We didn't have any of those things when we started. It was a dozen university students. That was it. I, I shut, oh wait, we got kicked out of the first building. I won't go into that. <laughs> we got kicked out for good reasons, not bad reasons. We found another building that there was a dog club in the next room, all these people with ten dogs on a leash would walk along the, while the service was proceeding. There was a judo or karate club upstairs. Every so often in a moment of worshipful silence, there'd be a boom, you know, and a great thud. And there was no heat. It was freezing. But we had disciples. We had disciples. And that's why it worked. Okay. I've got to get to the finish. Having disposed of the first potential recruit, Jesus turns to the second. He gets an even less appealing answer. The second man is actually interestingly described as, as a disciple. That probably means that he got into the group and, and had followed Jesus around for a while. Um, you know, maybe he was a, a guy who liked good teaching or maybe the miracles or whatever. There's lots of people like that around. But now, wait, uh, he has other business to attend to. So the discipleship worked for a little while, but now he needs a sabbatical. A sabbatical. Well, I don't know what that word means, but anyway, I'm joking. He needs a leave of absence. There's no sabbaticals in the kingdom of God. You can have a sabbatical from your employment. That's wonderful. But there's no sabbatical or leave of absence in the kingdom of God. You can't say, well, Jesus, I'll be a disciple, you know, but then I need a break for a while. No, sorry, it doesn't work that way. So this guy, just like the scribe before him, expresses his desire to follow Jesus, but there's a condition. He says, let me go first and bury my father. Now, sometimes that statement, if you, if you read it at face value, you, you think, oh my goodness, his father just died, and Jesus is so uh, cruel as to f- forbid him even from attending the funeral. But that's not actually what's happening here. For a start... Uh, according to Jewish custom, the eldest son, who this man must have been, is called to preside over all the funeral arrangements. Burial has to take place within 24 hours of death. If his father had really just died, that man would not even have been there with Jesus. He would have been out in his home village making the funeral preparations. So, in fact, the phrase means something quite different. To bury one's father was an expression for fulfilling a son's duty to look after his father for the remainder of his life. I have three sons. Maybe I should call that one in. (laughs) Look after dad. Uh, In other words, what he really wanted to do, he says, well, I'll be a disciple, but later. After I've gone and had my career, after I've made my money, 
After I've had a comfortable life, when I've retired, I might consider doing something for God. That's basically what he was saying. And Jesus says, well, I'm sorry, discipleship takes precedence over everything else. Some people say, well, there's God first, then family, then church, then this, then that. No, there's just God. There's just God. Everything else has to fit in. I mean, I am all for family. We had a large, we have a large family. We have grandchildren now. God loves family. But God takes precedence. Our children know that to serve God is what is important in our lives. And, and helping them is obviously part of that, but it's not all of that. Sometimes we think that once we've looked after our own affairs, provided for our family, raised our children, finished our career, got a good pension, have a bit of spare time when we're not on holiday, then we'll serve the Lord. But no discipleship is now. Either you follow Jesus or you don't. That's it. That applies to every single one of you who is a Christian here this morning. If you're not a Christian here this morning, then please come and talk to uh, somebody at the front afterward, and we'll be happy to introduce Jesus to you or talk to a friend. But if you're a Christian here this morning, as most of you are, discipleship is for now. Either you follow him or you don't. All the other priorities in your life have to be rearranged around the demands of God's kingdom. That's how I got here in the first place. My other priorities, things that I would have done, got rearranged. God has a habit of rearranging and disrupting our own priorities to place his first. And sometimes, often, there's a cost involved. But let me tell you, God is no person's debtor. You will never lose from becoming a disciple. You'll lose what you can't keep to gain what you can't lose. Whatever you've lost, God will supply a multitude more in place. It's always worth it to serve the Lord. So every other legitimate responsibility that we have has to be understood in light of our total commitment to Jesus. And the time to follow him is now. I'll give you the wisdom of experience. People who say they'll follow later never follow at all. Now... And this is the conclusion of the conclusion. (laughs) Having said all this, does this mean Jesus didn't care about the crowds? No. Does it mean numbers meant nothing to him? No. Jesus laid down his life for every one of us, and his desire is the maximum possible number of people enter the kingdom of God. God's desire is that all should be saved, and at least if not all, then many. But what it does mean is, That the path to reaching the many is through disciples, not hangers-on. A megachurch built on the personality of the preacher will produce commitment a mile wide and an inch deep. And the church will disappear when the preacher goes. But a small church that produces disciples will send those disciples out and they will change nations. Many of you don't know. I was talking to somebody the other day since we've been here. The number of churches that have been planted out of this congregation across the northeast of England, into Scotland and other places, other, other countries, including our own church in Canada. So a small group of a dozen young people, Andrew and Jane were in that group, 
who most all of whom made substantial personal sacrifices in order to, it's true, to be here. None of them came from here. They all, almost all of them turned down great job offers in other parts of the country. And it was massive unemployment. Remember those days? But every single one of them said yes to the discipleship to which Jesus was calling them. And it was, it was scary. It really was scary. We had no money, no nothing. We had no prestige. We were misunderstood in the community because churches like this didn't exist then. We were called a cult. And, and other things I won't go into. It was not easy. It was tough. But because a small group of people hung in there, young people, like these students that have showed up this morning. Just young people. But they were disciples. That's what they were. God had done an extraordinary work and put that in their hearts. And out of that small group of a dozen or so disciples, God has reached the nations. You know, that can be a phrase in charismatic circles. I'm sending you to the nations. But it did actually happen. Here's a few flags up. There's a particularly good one at the end over there. And God hasn't finished with the legacy of this church. God has not finished. There are some of you here that God will send out. And will it be easy? No, it may be quite tough. But if you're a disciple, you'll make it. The desire of God is to reach large numbers of people. But this is the only true and proven biblical way to do it. If we don't preach discipleship, it's because we don't want to pay the cost. But let me tell you this morning, the price is always worth paying. And for this one reason, and if everything I've said this morning, you know, hasn't really made a difference to you, please... Listen to this sentence. Discipleship is the only way for a person to draw close to Jesus Christ. It was the disciples who were in the middle of the meeting. It was the disciples who were standing with Jesus. It was the disciples who got to go with Jesus wherever he went. He never left them for three years, day and night. If you want to be close to Jesus, be a disciple. If you just want to be part of a crowd, there's less cost, but you'll never be close to Jesus. I want to be close to Jesus, don't you? I want to touch the hem of his garment. I want to know him walking with me. And the only way to do it is to be a disciple. You'll never regret it. Never. Let's stand together. I'd just like to pray briefly before I hand the meeting back to Alan. Now, Holy Spirit, you are here with us this morning. And there's lots of people in this room. The age range is enormous. But I'm praying, Holy Spirit, now. Would you speak to our hearts? No matter what age we are, young or old, 
there's always time to commit to discipleship. I pray particularly for the younger people here, the students. Would you please place in their heart a burning desire to be close to Jesus? To become disciples. To become people who are sent out to reach others for Christ. To become people who don't just come to church to get their own cup filled. But people who come to church to be part of a river that flows out through them. To bring life to those around them. And Lord, I thank you that there's no great qualifications needed. Lord, you you don't call the qualified. You qualify the called. And we're all called. And you take ordinary people and you do extraordinary things through them. That is the story of this church. And the story is still ongoing. And so this morning, Holy Spirit, if there are those here who are challenged by the words that I've spoken, Holy Spirit, please bring that deep conviction to their hearts that they would be committed today to walk in the way of discipleship and never, ever turn back. Amen.